Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. At least you sound normal. Yeah. I sound like this. I'm, I'm good at acting. I don't know what this one sounds like. I don't know what this one's going to sound like, lovely listener, but uh, uh, we're really a bit under the weather this week, aren't we? Yeah, you sound like you're on 50 a day. Taking the smoking out of you. I'm on 50 what a day. <laughs> should be uh, the thing. So, also, because tonight is a part one of a very special episode, we're only going to do uh, an email or two before we get started. And so the email tonight is hello from Kentucky. It's from Chris Franklin that says, Greetings and salutations. I would like to drop you to a line and let you know how much I've been enjoying your podcast. I found your merry little show in a pseudo six degrees of Kevin Bacon manner. I had previously been a fan of both the Fire and Water podcast and the Radio KAL weekly live show. Both of those podcasts now owe us money for plugging them. Yes. I believe this is a a new thing that I have just invented. Yeah, good. It's a good thing to invent. I thought so, yeah. There I encountered Michael Bailey and Shag and followed them over to Views from the Longbox, where I heard a commercial for your show and a guest spot featuring each of you. That led me here, and my ears have been devouring your comic ramblings ever since. Although I suppose the Views from the Longbox crew, which is basically Mike, hi Mike, could turn that around and say, well, without Views, homie, (laughs) Chris would never have discovered you, so let's, let's you send that money right back to me. Yeah. And damn it, he would have a point. Well, I guess since there was no money in the first place, we're all equal now. Anyway. Yes, because no money actually changed hands anywhere. Yeah. Because senior demands or approves not of such things. Does it have to go through him first? Yeah. He takes, yeah. He takes a percentage. Yeah, unfortunately. So, so far, a percentage of nothing is still nothing. So we're laughing there, aren't we? Yeah. Anyway, Chris continues. As a father who has also warped his son into a lifelong obsession with comics, I can totally relate to the family dynamic you two put across. My son, who is also named Andrew, by the way, an excellent choice, I think, is 11 and grew up with me reading him a steady diet of mostly classic silver and bronze age stories every night before bedtime. I've now taken up that task with my five-year-old daughter whilst my son now combs my long boxes and bookshelves on his own. In addition to enjoying the family connection you two have, I also appreciate Michael's perspective as a younger reader. By my calculations, I'm just a few years younger than Andrew, so I fall into that most new stuff sucks camp. It's nice to hear from the audience comic companies are actually courting nowadays. As it stands, I feel my son is still a little bit too young for much of DC and Marvel's current output, but he's getting close to being able to digest it if it's possible to stomach some of that stuff. See? Old man rant again. While I find myself almost always agreeing with Andrew, Michael's comments remind me that I was young pup once, and there were probably older fans balking at Spidey's black costume, Superman's ripped cape, and other such then-permanent changes. I've been bouncing along your backlog of episodes, 
episodes, and found some real gems that have made me relive some of my favourite stories and share them with my kids. Your episode on the great Batman-Captain America crossover had me giving that to my son, who devoured it and then asked for more, so I gave him Burns' First Generations Minute, which he loved. Your Couch Potato series caused me to watch some of my Hulk TV series DVDs for the first time in years, and the kids got in that one too. Good. I've watched The Incredible Hulk with all of my kids. Some to a greater extent than others. Dip, 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 daddy. (laughs) Enough of my rambling. I would like to say again, good job. I was wondering if you might consider covering some of James Robinson's excellent series, Starman. It is a favourite of mine and one of the few comics titles I can look fondly back upon and not lament what became of the characters afterward. Thanks again, Chris. Earth to Chris Frank. Oh, thank you very much, Chris. We have have spoken of reading Starman. Yeah, well... How the print in the omnibus is now. And they've stopped doing the trade paperback omnibuses, which means you would you can get the first two in trade, yeah, and the second two in hardback. But all the hardbacks are all sold out. Yeah, there. so, well done DC. See, something that sells you down the digital route. Yeah. Um, enough people have said nice things about Starman that we have considered certainly reading it at some point, but uh, I've never actually read it. It is one of those classic comic book runs I know nothing about. Mm. Although, I do need to thank Chris personally, because he and I shared a a number of emails following this email, which we received a while ago, but it took us a while to get to it. And in the course of our conversation, he told me he had been published in Back Issue magazine, which I I thought was quite cool. And uh, he then told me that he had comp copies of the issues that he had been featured in. Never one to refuse when somebody offers to send me something for free. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I'll have them. And uh, they arrived in the post yesterday morning as we record this. So thank you very much, Chris. I'm looking forward to reading them. I've already read the Dead Man article. Oh, yeah. The I, issues, was, I was looking at that. So. <coughs> it's the post-Neil Adams Dead Man stuff. I was looking at all the Neil Adams artwork. Yeah, that's the article I've read. But for those that are interested, Chris has had articles published in the issue that had a big Jim Sterling interview all about dead comic book heroes, and then the Defenders cover issue, where they talk about um, B-teams like the Doom Patrol and, and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that as well, with those original art and that. Yeah, well, the back issue tries to have a lot of original I quite, art. I quite like looking through back issue, just because of the original back art. Back issue's a great magazine. I, d- I genuinely do love back issue magazine. I wish it was, A, easier to get hold of, and B, a little bit cheaper. You have to buy it through a website. Uh, I may have to investigate getting that digitally, just because they do... It much cheaper digitally. Yeah. Which, like, is kind of intelligent, I think. Somebody mm. should tell DC that. Uh, anyway, that's that's from Chris Franklin, so thank you for the back issues, Chris. Thank you for the email. We'll have more emails next week. We'll take a quick break, and that we'll get into the meat of the episode, obviously, because there is a lot of talking tonight. Mm. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Chris. And this is Rick. And we're the hosts of the Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. We're celebrating the original Battlestar Galactica series, and we're doing that by uh, watching an episode in total and commenting on it as it runs. And you know what's really fun about it is we're attempting to bring guest hosts in with us so that we can talk kind of like that mystery science theater kind of thing. And we sometimes we make a little fun of the episode, and sometimes we talk about how cool it is, so you just never know what you're going to get when you listen. Yes. So come and join us. We're on iTunes. You can find us by searching for Ragtag Fugitive Podcast, and we're on the Stitcher Radio Network. You also can visit our cool website and make comments and have fun looking around in the officer's lounge and all that jazz by going to Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. 
Warrior.com. You have our word as a warrior. Word as a warrior? Plank down your cubits and come on over and let's play a game of Pyramid, the Ragtag Fugitive Podcast. By your command. And we're back. Good, because you sound a little better than me for doing it. And we're back. I can't bring the same gravitas to yeah. it. <clears throat> and we're back. Yeah. Is that what it sounds like? Yeah. Do I sound like I should be an early morning radio DJ? Yeah, yeah. Puffing away on the cigarette. <laughs> Drinking me whiskey. Only one of those things I actually do. Early in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> ah, Hey Kids Comics, a Batman podcast. This episode came about through two specific instances, which is quite unusual for us, as normally I ask Michael, what about covering X, and he grunts, either negative or positive. So to have a show idea be inspired by others is quite unique. Firstly, listeners to the show Gus Shaw emailed in a while ago, and he mentioned how he thought that Batman was quite hard to get into without a degree in Batmanology, and this got me to thinking. I'd always considered Batman to one of the easiest comic characters to get into. For one thing, an awful lot of his adventures have been traded, both in anthology format, collecting different stories from different eras, and either trade, hardcover, or absolute editions of complete arcs. And Batman, unlike a lot of other characters, tends to have quite an episodic back catalogue, without a lot of character continuity and baggage. It's why he's escaped the various crises zero hours and other calamitous events relatively unscathed. Secondly, a recent episode of Fat Man on Batman had writer Kyle Higgins as a guest, and he was picking his top five favourite Batman stories, in between Kevin Smith interrupting him, and never one not to steal a good idea. These two events, along with how much fun doing the top ten Spider-Man stories well, made me think, what are my favourite Batman stories? I consulted with Michael, who felt he could actually bring a number of stories to the table, and we were off and running. Luke Giaconetti reckons that everyone has some fondness for Batman on some level, but for me it's more than a fondness. I've said before my top four favourite superhero characters are Spider-Man, Superman, Hulk and Batman, as, purely by coincidence I'm sure, these were the four annuals that I received on that fateful Christmas day in 1978. He's someone I like on a coolness level. I identified with Peter Parker. I agonised over how tragic it would be to be Bruce Banner. I wondered how great it would be to be able to fly like Superman. But Batman was cool. He was like James Bond, only in a cape. As Bruce Wayne, he was suave and debonair. But by night, he took no crap as the Batman. And for me, he was the Batman. The definitive article, you might say. However, of all my favourites, he's the one I have a specific vision of. I can read and appreciate all eras of Superman, some of the sillier Spider-Man stories, and even the wacky constant shifts in the character of the Incredible Hulk in his early stories. But to me, Batman is the Dark Knight detective. He prowls the darkness, solving crimes with his head and deductive ability, although, when necessary, he breaks other people's heads. I have little affinity for the 50s era of Batman. Although, for many people, this is THE Batman, and who am I to say they're wrong? With that in mind, I set a criteria. They have to be Batman stories. As an archetypical hero, Batman is like James Bond, Tarzan and Conan, in that rarely are his adventures about him. He has to stay the same, more or less, but a story is about change. So by definition, many great Batman stories are not actually about Batman, rather the people who orbit him or his magnificent rogues gallery. To that end, I've picked a range of stories from across the eras, some long-time classics, some that simply mean something to me. You'll find no killing joke, Dark Knight Returns, or Year One here, for what I hope are obvious reasons. I've not listed them in order, 10, 9, 8, etc. Rather, these are a collection of my favourites that, for the most part, are one-issue stories. 
It'll also probably come as no surprise that a lot of my favourites are from my personal golden age of reading, 1980 through 1989. I've also cheated in that there are more than ten. As with all things of this nature, there were some notable omissions. Stories I genuinely love that didn't make the cut, for one reason or another. The first was Batman the Cult, a four-part prestige or bookshelf format miniseries from 1988 by Jim Starlin and Bernie Wrightson. It's a great series, but too long form for our purposes here. Likewise, No Man's Land, which I think is one of the most epic Batman stories ever, and Hush, a summer popcorn muncher but nevertheless a hugely entertaining story, were also dropped for similar reasons of length. Others just fell away as I trimmed the fat. I loved all of the original Batman Adventures comics based upon the animated series, but especially any drawn by the late, great Mike Parabek, and any number of issues of that series almost made the cut. My two favourite Batman origins are The Origin of Batman, from Batman issue 47 by Bill Finger and Bob Kane, and Secret Origins issue 6, The Origin of the Golden Age Batman by Roy Thomas and Marshall Rogers. I'm also a big fan of the three-part Untold Legends of the Batman by Len Wein and Jim Aparo, but ultimately I decided that Batman's origin doesn't really need much discussion beyond I like this version. The player on the other side, from Batman Special Number 1 by Mike W. Barr and Michael Golden, is probably my all-time favourite Batman story, but we covered that back in the early days of the show, so I reluctantly dropped it. A couple of annuals also didn't make the cut as well. Annual issue 8, The Messiah of the Crimson Sun, also by Mike W. Barr, but without by Trevor Von Eden, was very good, but I dropped it for reasons that will become obvious as we go along. Annual number 14, The Eye of the Beholder by Andy Helfer and Chris Sprouse, is a great origin of Two-Face story, but is not a Batman story, so it was kicked to the curb. Likewise, Mad Love by Bruce Timm and Paul Dini is a Harley Quinn story, and Detective Comics 826, Sleigh Ride, also written by Paul Dini, is an excellent issue, but it's a Joker and Robin story, not a Batman story, and thus failed to meet the criteria. In fact, all of Deanie's detective run is pretty good, as it was probably the last time Batman comics were doing done-in-one stories. Legends of the Dark Knight, the anthology book that ran from 1989 to 2007, had a number of great stories, again dropped mostly due for length. My picks would have included Faces, Blades, Mask, Going Sane, Siege and Grim as top of the heap. There are also no Joker stories in the mix, as we're saving them for our dreadful birthday Dear Joker season early next year. There's also very little from the 90s, largely because we've already covered Nightfall, Night's Quest, Night's End, Prodigal, Troika, and the Zero Hour Bat books in earlier episodes. And that was the 90s. And that was pretty much the 90s. It was only No Man's Land, but we've already mentioned that that was dropped. Speaking for me personally, I felt it was too early to call if some of the better Scott Snyder stuff, caught Night of Owls, would rank as a favourite. And although I've heard great things about it, I've never read The Black Mirror. So what did make the cut? Glad you asked. Welcome to the Batman's Dozen. Thirteen Tales of Urban Vigilanteism. Plus whatever Michael picked. Speaking of whatever Michael picked... Mm -hmm. Well, my selection ranges from all over the past five years. A long span of time. Yeah, well, like you said, your golden era of reading Batman, mine is Morrison to now. Pretty much. The Long Halloween is probably my all-time favourite Batman story, but it's a 13-issue story. All issues are just as good as the next, and the last issue. My selection is a collection of either my favourite single-issue stories, or my favourite chapter of a larger story. Or, in some cases, my favourite chapter of a larger story in an even larger story. <laughs> I also spread out and touched on other characters who were inspired by Batman. One is well-known, the other maybe not so much. 
And I'll start off with our choices, and it gives you opportunity yeah. to rest your voice. Well, with my list, I'm going from oldest to newest, starting off with Robin Dies at Dawn, which was printed in Batman 156 in June 1963. It was written by Bill Finger, penciled by Sheldon Mulder, and inked by Charles Parrott. The cover for the sensational two-part adventure showed Batman crying, yes, crying, whilst carrying a lifeless Robin on an alien world. He, he's dead, Robin is dead, Batman states. He sacrificed himself for me on this alien world. Should I not be doing all of this with my voice at the moment? Go on. He's dead. He's, he's dead, Robin is dead. He sacrificed himself for me on this alien world. I don't see 50s, 60s Batman is talking like that. 50s, 60s Batman probably did smoke a pack a day, though. Because everybody did, didn't they? In the 50s and 60s. I guess. He sounds more of a, no, my old chum. Yeah, he does, <laughs> he does sound a bit more uh, energetic. It's a cover that would go on to inspire many others later in the years, most notably the death of Phoenix in the X-Men and death of Supergirl in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Batman finds himself on an alien world with no memory of how he got there and no utility belt. As he explores his surroundings, he, see, he sees ruins of a building and tries to reach them before he's attacked by a triffid. Robin, appear- <laughs> Robin appears and saves him from the triffid, and the two escape from oncoming land octopuses. As dawn comes, Batman and Robin encounter a giant pink statue that creates fear in the heart of the man who claims to be, who claims to be fear personified. <laughs> the statue chases the two but falls down a chasm, but not before killing the boy wonder with a boulder. Later, Batman buries his sidekick before he continues his exploration. Much, much later, he grows tired and weary, becoming paranoid that people are watching him and bumping into a big, purple, monstrous hypno-toad. <laughs> Hypno-coin! <laughs> he falls as he allows the monster to attack him, claiming that he doesn't want to live without Robin. He wakes up in a locked room with equipment all over him. He is rescued by Robin, an unnamed doctor, Dr. Simon Hurt, a.k.a. Jonathan Wayne, but we don't know about that yet, and a military general. The general thanks Batman for his contribution to space medicine testing. The next day, Batman dictates his hallucination to the doctor and the general, and the doctor tells him, and the dream and Robin's death was because of mankind's primitive fear of loneliness before Batman leaves with Robin. I want to know what General Thunderbolt Ross was doing in the DC Universe. (laughs) Just taking a break. On patrol, Batman and Robin spot the Gorilla Gang, who escape after Batman sees the giant stone monster and almost knocks Robin off the roof of the building whilst trying to save him. A Wayne Manor, Bruce's nightmares of his time on the alien planet. Because of his hallucinations, Bruce quits being Batman, and so Robin goes to see the Doctor, who tells him that Batman will need some treatment. Later, Commissioner Gordon informs Bruce that Robin was intercepted by the Gorilla Gang and is being held hostage with a message from the gang, Robin dies at dawn. Bruce becomes Batman once again and scours Gotham with Ace until he comes across the gang's hideout. To get in, Batman disguises himself as one of the gang and, after one last hallucination, takes down the gang and saves Robin. A story straight out of my comfort zone as a Batman fan. Uh, To be honest, the minute he's on Alien Worlds, I start rolling my eyes. And yet this story isn't without its charm. For one, as the story unfolds, we learn it's Batman helping out scientists by volunteering as a guinea pig for an experiment on the stresses on the body. 
to a scientist or astronaut, so it's not like he's really on planet Zog. Secondly, there's some pretty good moody art as Batman stands before the full moon, wondering where Robin could be. And as Mike mentioned, there's the pervading feeling of isolation and loneliness, which gives the story a melancholy feel. It's easy to pick holes in stories of this vintage, but were I reading this as a ten-year-old in the early 1960s, I probably would have enjoyed it. And my ten-year-old self quite enjoyed it when I read it today. (laughs) Well, this issue is one of my favourites. Uh, on the surface, it's fun, wacky Batman story, uh, but under that is a much darker story than others of this era. The theme of loneliness in this issue, in particular, was the inspiration for several other stories, ranging from the first episode of The Twilight Zone, Where Is Everybody, to Morrison's run on Batman, particularly Batman R.I.P. to Batman and Robin. One of my favourite things about it is how dark it is when you think about it. Yeah, it is a story where Batman is concerned that Robin's dead. He's actually watched him die. And he goes through all these hallucinations about being lonely and alone and being alienated. Yeah. There is there's quite an interesting thematic undercurrent to what is, on the face of it, a rather silly early 60s Batman story. Mm. It was a good pick. I quite enjoyed that one. No problem at all with that. My first pick, and going forward like Michael in date order, is Detective Comics... 329 with a cover date of July 1964. The cover proclaimed that this was a new look Batman and Robin thriller. Castle with wall to wall danger. The original cover by Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson shows Batman and Robin wandering the halls of a dusty castle. Robin stands on a spring hidden in the staircase opening a trap door that Batman is standing on. Quite like that Batman's holding a candle that he drops. It's a good cover. Infantino is a very stylized artist, and my generation is more familiar with his Star Wars work than his superhero stuff. But I thought this was a really striking cover, which I have to be honest, I only saw for the first time last year when I got the Dynamic Duo Archive Volume 1 in Florida for ten whole dollars. The fact that this story was in the collection was my reason for buying the volume. Do you like the cover? It's okay. <laughs> is that all I've got from you? It's okay. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. The story was written by John Broom with art by Carmine Infantino and Joe Giella. Commissioner Gordon gives Batman a call on the bat phone telling him that a crook known as Frank Pragnall, a thief who eluded Batman during a crime spree in Gotham recently under the name Albert Marge, is apparently living in a sprawling estate in England. Gordon has arranged an extradition and Batman and Robin take to the skies in the Batplane. Landing at the Marge estate, however, they realise that Marge merely looks like Pragnall and they prepare to leave, but Marge insists they stay for dinner. The duo agree, but after a night fraught with booby traps and clubs, shaves, the duo believe that there's more going on here than meets the eye. A point proven when a gang of thugs attack, but one man, disguised in a trench coat and hat, escapes. Later, the man confronts Batman and Robin with a gun, but he is, of course, no real threat to them, and as they punch his lights out, Albert March applauds their actions. Turns out, Albert is Pragnall's cousin, explaining the family resemblance, who returned to England after learning Albert had a line on some old Nazi gold hidden in the castle by fleeing Nazis after the war. He locked up Albert's wife and kids and threatened to kill him if he said anything after Batman and Robin arrived. Batman muses that if Pragnall had done nothing, they would have left none the wiser. Scotland Yard arranges extradition, and many weeks later, when Albert discovers the treasure, he makes a check out for $50,000 to a charity of Batman and Robin's choice. Um, this issue, I thought was quite a fun read. Yeah. But it's based on coincidence after coincidence. Yeah, this, these are true facts. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that the issue zigged when we thought it was going to zag. You know, it turned out it was his brother and not actually him. Yeah, he wasn't really a bad guy. Yeah, but I just thought it was too coincidental. 
I mean, there's a suspension of disbelief, and then there's this. <laughs> and also, like, Batman falls down a trap door, and then the, the whole sinking sound thing was like, do, do we really have this in castles? Of course we do. <laughs> I totally bought that there'd be quicksand in a castle. Okay. Why not? You know? I've never been in, a, in an English castle that we all apparently live in. So we can't exactly prove it wrong. So we can't. I have actually been in a couple of castles, but, you know. Yeah, I thought it was fun and all, but I just wasn't really getting into it. Alright, fair enough. Um, I thought this was a solid early 60s tale, part of editor Julius Swartz's efforts to return Batman to his detective roots after the sci-fi Batman of the 50s. There's nothing too silly in this story, it all flows well and the art is fantastic. Batman is congratulated by Scotland Yard for his deductive skills, but ever modest, points out that it was all luck, really. My love of this tale is admittedly purely nostalgia, although it's clearly out of my era as a Batman fan, or even my preferred type of Batman story, although it is far preferable to me personally than the 50s material. I first read this in a UK annual from 1971, which I don't have anymore, which is odd as I never got rid of any annuals, yet two Batman ones are suspiciously missing. Still, I recall this tale fondly. The annual had an article interview with Adam West in the beginning, and it's easy to hear the voices of West and Burt Ward throughout this story, even though it's not campy in any way. Robin's preoccupation with roast beef and Yorkshire pudding is a funny moment, and the UK setting, probably the reason this story was included in a UK annual in the first place, wasn't too clichéd. In fact, Batman is well known by Scotland Yard, and they are only too happy to help. There's some intentional humour in Batman and Robin being shown to a room with only one bed, who were missus, and Batman and Robin can apparently take off for London with no flight plan, and Robin can apparently take a few days off school with absolutely no hassle whatsoever. Nevertheless, I still get a kick out of this story. The death traps are pretty cool, especially the quicksand. It's refreshingly free of the kind of silliness we expect from this era, and the other stories in the archive back this up as a pretty typical tale of the era, and it packs a lot into its 15 pages. In many ways, it's a shame that the TV series went down the camp route, infecting the later 60s comics, as had the TV show followed this comic's lead and been a relatively serious show like The Adventures of Superman, maybe it wouldn't be as reviled by certain sections of fandom. The new look that the cover refers to was Schwartz and Infantino's decision to add a yellow oval around the bat on Batman's chest. Two reasons seem to exist for this change. One, Schwartz and Infantino simply wanted to differentiate between this Batman and the previous era, and B, you can't copyright a bat, but for purposes of copyright and merchandising, if you put a yellow oval around it, it becomes a symbol, which can be copyrighted and merchandised. Schwartz also saved Batman with this move, resurrecting moribund sales with a groovy new Infantino art, drastically different from the Bob Kane house style, and infusing the book with more down-to-earth stories. It would not be the last time Schwartz came to the aid of a sales-crippled caped crusader. Also, Alfred is dead at the time this story saw print. But he got better. Yes, he got better. <laughs> it turned out that it wasn't him who died after all. Ah. And he, he recovered after having amnesia, I believe, and believing that he was a bad guy of some description. Was he not just acting? No, he was not <laughs> just acting. He was genuinely affected by it. He was brought back to life because he was in the TV show. Ah, so that's why he was resurrected. Michael's next pick... Yes, my next choice is something that several listeners should have, and probably did, know was coming. Printed in July 2007, with a cover of an unknown Batman towering over a burning Gotham City, Batman in Bethlehem, printed in Batman 666, was written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Andy Kubert, and inked by Jesse Delperdang. <laughs> I love that name. Delperdang. How you going, dear Delperdang? <laughs> 
Actually, that hurts my voice. I don't think I'll be doing too many impressions tonight. <laughs> and no um, singing either. I, I really doubt there'll be any singing. And suddenly the nation applauds. <laughs> uh, I like the cover to this one a great deal. Andy Kubert's a fantastic artist. And this image of a futuristic Batman wearing a large Dracula collar is very striking. It follows the more traditional poster covers of more recent vintage instead of the covers where interesting events occur. But of that type, this is pretty good. Batman sees a young girl from one of Professor Pig's Dollatrons in a church. That's a great name. <laughs> As he leaves, he is, surrounded by, he is surrounded by Commissioner Barbara Gordon and heavily armoured police officers. Batman escapes whilst the police find Pig crucified upside down in the church. At home in the Wayne Towers penthouse, Batman states that he's found the killer of the people Batman's been accused of killing. One of the three Batmen that haunted his father several years ago, the one who claimed to be the Antichrist. Batman marks the locations of where all the big-time Gotham crime bosses were killed and pinpoints the anti-Bat Christ next location in the centre of the giant Satan signal that spans all of Gotham. The signature of the anti-Bat. Batman crashes the hotel that's already been taken over by Anti and takes down all of his goons. As Anti burns Batman, he is told that during the first three years of Batman's career, he turned Gotham into a, re- into a weapon and rigged every building with bombs, including this one. Anti is sent flying by the explosion and lands in the swimming pool floors below. After Anti rises from the water, Batman stabs him before breaking his neck, as if he wasn't dead enough, <laughs> and the police arrive and shoot him down. Gordon tells him to stop and asks who Batman is. He tells her that he's her best friend and that the apocalypse is cancelled, until he says so. And they felt the Man of Steel ending was controversial. <laughs> this was a marked contrast to my first pick that in many ways shows how much more violent, bloody and, in some ways, unpleasant comics have become. This issue, what would have once been an imaginary story of a future Batman, is replete with many of writer Grant Morrison's pet themes, there's the biblical imagery and references all over this story, and mention of Yeats and John Lennon, as well as a non-linear narrative. Yet the story moves along at a much faster clip than my first pick, and is a pretty good read in and of itself, while setting up more of the Morrison master plan that would dominate the Bat title for the better part of seven years. It's an interesting take, Batman as a legacy character, and a more ruthless Batman than even Jean-Paul Valli, but despite Alfred being a cat, which raised a smile, I found this to be a rather bleak and joyless tale. Damian Wayne isn't the Batman, something he himself does acknowledge, but he arguably isn't Batman at all. Nice art, though. Um, this issue was when I thought Morrison's run took a different turn. Damien Wade, who we were introduced to a few issues before as Batman's son, is now Batman. A story that has now lost all meaning. What, because of the New 52? Uh, just how this story turned out? Yeah, this, how this story was an imaginary story. Right, okay. But it is a what-if story. That foreshadows future events. There's a plethora of easter eggs and foreshadowed characters from Max Roboto, Professor Pig and the Flamingo that wouldn't make appearances until Batman and Robin years down the line. It calls back to previous issues with the Antichrist Batman and once again foreshadowing the next story arc in which Bruce Wayne Batman is attacked by this Batman but fails in capturing him. It also has great character beats such as Damon acknowledging that he'll never be better than Dick Grayson when the character in our time would never say that he even liked Dick until the final issue to Batman Incorporated Volume 2 where he would say that Dick was always his favourite before being killed. It's a brutal apocalyptic story of Batman Robocop and it just looks cool. 
It doesn't need a story. With Cuba's art in this apocalyptic story, it looks really, really cool. Which is one of the things Morrison always goes for with his comics. Even if he didn't like it, someone did. As Cuba himself has started writing and penciling his own What If Damien miniseries in this timeline. Is the gorilla that's in this the Joker's pet gorilla? It, it could be. Because Jack and Apes is in the Villains United Joker issue. Yeah. And it shows you how he adopts him and trains him. Fair enough. So it's not written by Grant Morrison. Yeah. But I do wonder if that plays into this. But you've not read any of the Villains United stuff yet, have you? No. No. I've, I've got to confess, I found most of it to be meh. Mm. Nothing egregious enough to actively hate. Yeah. But nothing spectacular either. There's a great feeling of deja vu in reading some of it. Like, I've read this before. Yeah. I read it when it was called Vengeance of Bane. <laughs> stuff like that. Anyway, not a bad pick. Mm-hmm. It's just a good standalone story. Just not what you would have come for. No, 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 but that's why it's your picks, not mine. <laughs> that's why they're your favourite stories, not mine. That's the, the whole point of the endeavour. My second choice is generally considered an all-time classic, but pretty much all of the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stories are considered classic. Denny O'Neill Adams. Denny O'Neill Adams, yes. Batman with Robin the Teen Wonder, issue 232, cover dated June 1971, has one of the single best Batman covers ever, by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. A tale to haunt you forever. Daughter of the Demon runs the cover copy as what looks like a penciled but not inked Raish al Ghul decrees. When I decide Robin must die, he dies, and holds his taloned hand over Robin, who is shot from an off-camera assassin as Batman watches helpless. As with most of the covers of this era, however, it would be years before I actually saw this. The story was written by Denny O'Neill without by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. After a night's crime fighting, Robin sneaks back to his dorm room at Hudson University, where he's shot twice at point-blank range. Days later, Bruce Wayne receives a note and a picture. Robin is still alive and the Batman is tasked with saving him, if he can. Awaiting him in the Batcave, a strange-looking man named Raz al Ghul informs the Batman that his daughter, Talia, whom the Batman has met previously, has also been captured, and he received a similar photo and message. The Batman analyses both, and he deduces that they were sent by a far eastern group of killers, the Brotherhood of the Demon, who are located in Calcutta. Raz heads for his personal plane, and Ubu, Raz's guard, prevents Batman from taking the lead. Arriving in Calcutta, danger and peril dog their every step, but methodically the Batman's investigations lead them to the Himalayas. After more intrigue, the Batman has put together all the pieces and makes his way into the kidnapper's lure. The Batman cockily enters a where the guards don't dare fire, and shares a few words and a small knife with Robin. The Supreme Brother enters, but Batman has had enough of this crap, and lays out all the clues that he's put together, and spells out that he knew Raz was behind this whole thing from the very beginning. With Robin free, he and the Batman take out the guards. The Batman lets Ubu take a swing and then lays him out. An enraged Batman asks why the ruse, and Raz states that this was all a test to see if the Batman is a worthy son-in-law for his beloved daughter, Talia al Ghul. Um, I did enjoy this issue, uh, despite... <laughs> I was going to say there's a book coming here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Despite the dialogue being a bit too stiff for me to get into. Uh, the art, I thought, was great. Um, I-, I-, I can see were... I can see the similarities between this and his newest stuff, even though this one, his earlier art, is much better than his new stuff. Um, I'm not sure what it is about his new stuff that I don't like, but there is something about it. Yeah, it's... 
It's really, really similar, but really... Yeah, bad. it's like somebody doing a bad impersonation of Neil Adams. Yeah. It's still recognisably Neil Adams, but there's but, something off yeah. about it, isn't there? I know, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying, and I, I can't say what it is either. But there were parts of Batman Odyssey mm. I did actually find painful to look at. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know what it is. It's one of them... He is, in every conceivable way, a better artist now than he was then. Yeah. But by becoming a better artist, he's lost something that made him a great comics artist. It's really weird. I can't explain it. It's not that I still don't... I still think he's good. Yeah. And I still like a lot of his work. But the idea that in some of the reprints of his work... He has gone back and redrawn certain panels. Yeah. Just really doesn't sit well with me. I think that's a terrible idea. Well, maybe he disagrees with you. I would imagine that he, <laughs> he does disagree with me. I think this Joker's five-way revenge... Yeah, that's, that's a in this um, Greatest Batman stories ever told here is recolored, which would probably mean this may be one of the, the redrawn ones as well. But I've never sat down and compared it to my... Joker's five-way revenge to see if I can spot any differences. But, I don't know, maybe this is just recolored, But it, it does look a bit weird. Mm. I thought this was an excellent issue in almost every regard. Again, I first read this in an early annual that I don't have anymore. And the first page of Robin being shot I actually found quite haunting as a child. There are some subsequent reprints that really screw this up by printing it so that page one and page two are side by side yeah. instead of page one making you turn the page because your eye can't help but wonder to page two where you see that Robin's alive and tied up in a picture Yeah. so that kind of ruins the impact of it the rest of the story is just as good and belies the idea that Batman has to be in Gotham all the time as here is a globe-trotting almost Bondian figure the clues that Batman pieces together are just subtle enough to not be blatantly obvious to a young reader. And crucially, when you go back, they all make sense. I especially loved the Batman making a big deal out of letting Raz through the door first. And it's only on subsequent re readings we realise that by this point, the Batman has figured out that the leopard attack was planned as Ubu didn't let Raz enter first, unlike every other time they've entered a room. The other clues along the way are satisfyingly revealed and the Batman's cocksure manner entering the cave was brilliant. This is my Batman. Driven, yes. Obsessed, yes. But capable of humour and snark. There's a scene where he betrays no emotion upon being informed that Robin may be dead and Raz calls him out on it. But the Batman simply states emotion will come later if it needs to. But for now it would simply get in the way. He even acknowledges how Raz found out Bruce was the Batman, which was well done, and he says it's a gap he will plug so that nobody else can do that in the future, which I thought was a nice touch. I've got a few more notes about this issue than just our general thoughts, because I, I genuinely do love this one. Yeah. I think this is a fantastic issue. There's a one-page recap of both Batman and Robin's origins where it's revealed that Bruce was not yet old enough to vote when he first donned the Batman guys and it's as epic a retelling as any 12-part storyline. This Batman also has absolutely no problem whatsoever using violence and even threatening death to the street vendor to get the information he desires. 
The fight with the leopard evokes an early episode of the 60s TV show, but the Batman's answer is far more final here, and he lies to catch Raz in a trap. There was no line on the map telling him where to go, but Raz took him directly to the correct cave. I like this simply because at this point in the story, the Batman's already figured it all out, and this is just confirming his suspicions. The Batman wearing his costume under his climbing apparatus and cowl could be campy, but with Adam's neo-realistic style it's not. So, and we are even given hints to Raz's ultimate goal as he looks upon the sparse Himalayan wasteland. The Batman dealing with the sniper that almost kills him is an almost wordless action sequence is brilliantly rendered, as is his Agatha Christie moment at the end where he explains the plot. His teasing of Ubu shows his mean streak, yet the final conclusion that this was all a ruse to get him to see if he was worthy of marrying Talia is ultimately what leaves this rather chatty Batman speechless. I thought the art in this was magnificent, so completely unlike any other art of the time. Adam's work is fluid, and his Batman no longer the barrel-chested, stocky figure of the 50s and 60s, rather a lean, muscular Bruce Lee-esque figure, whilst the Batman is also shown to be a bit of a player himself, with his capturing of Talia's heart. It's a taut, lean tale, with plenty of room for expansion in later stories, but complete unto and of itself, and one of my all-time favourites. I get what you're saying about the dialogue, because Denny O'Neill has actually said in the in various different introductions and stuff to his Green Lance and Green Arrow stuff, mm. he finds that now almost unreadable because of the stiffness of the dialogue. Yeah. I didn't think this was as bad as them. Yeah. I thought this was a bit more believable and fluid. But, yeah, I, I'll agree with you, there is a staginess to the dialogue in it, but it doesn't ruin it for me. And I, I think a lot of that just goes down to what you grew up reading, doesn't it? Yeah. In many ways. At this point in Bat history, the Batman was operating out of Wayne Industries, not the Manor, which is why it's all boarded up and the cave is mothballed. This was one of the earliest tales produced under Julius Schwartz after the camp excesses of the TV show had worn thin for both TV viewers and comics readers alike. Deciding to drastically change the direction of the Batman comics, Schwartz gave writer Denny O'Neill and artist Neil Adams the edict to make him like he used to be. O'Neill eliminated all camp from the script. Adams drew the Batman almost exclusively at night. Together, using an expression called magic realism, according to the Random House Dictionary, a style of literature in which the fantastic and imaginary are depicted in a sharply detailed, realistic manner, they vanquished the smiling, friendly caped crusader and brought back the grim avenger of the night, the dread Batman. This was also the first appearance of Raz al Ghul, a recurring adversary who would later be deemed an eco-terrorist, a man with but one goal, to restore harmony to our sad planet. Raz is the best kind of bad guy, someone the audience can appreciate and even sympathise with, until we realise Raz's methods of attaining said goal normally involve the death of millions of people. Rouse went on to become one of the Batman's deadliest arch enemies. Finally, elements of this story were incorporated into a two-part episode of the Batman animated series entitled The Demon's Quest. Is that it? Whenever he's in a story, that's to be called Demon. That's to have the word demon in the title <laughs> now, yeah. The demon's a demon. The demon's demon. The demon's demon spawn. <laughs> I don't know that that would have worked as a title, and The Son the, of the Demon, and to be honest. The Damien shows up and then it's... The demons, demon spawns, demon spawns. <laughs> Stop it! I'm not allowed to laugh tonight because I keep coughing. My next pick is a two-part story, running over Batman 686 and Detective Comics 853, 
both cover dated April 2009, both entitled Whatever Happened to the Caped Crusader. As evidence of the times they are a-changing, both these issues have two covers. The Batman has one by Alex Ross of Alfred holding the Batman's cape and cowl, looking despondent, and is a typical Alex Ross cover. It's good and it stands out on the rack, but if you're not an Alex Ross fan it won't change your mind. The second cover by Andy Kubert is better. The friends and foes of the Batman queue up outside his wake as the spectral shadow of the Bat hovers over them. I liked the range of Bat villains here, and any cover that includes the Gentleman Ghost gets a thumbs up. Both the covers for Detective 853 were by Andy Kubert. The variant has the Batman lying in a coffin-like position as Gotham sits around him. The second is, again, much better. A take on Tech 27 by Bob Kane, the Batman, all cape, grabs a villain while swinging in at two others who are fighting firing their weapons. More dynamic and eye-catching in every way. Both issues were also slightly longer than usual, but not enough to be considered double-sized. Uh, both issues were written by Neil Gaiman, with art by Andy Kubert, inked by Scott Williams, and coloured by Andy Sinclair. Alex Sinclair. I was just going to say. Joe Chill works a bar as Selina Kyle enters. She asks him, wasn't he dead? And he says that he was here when this started, and he'll be here when it ends. And as Selina finds out when she enters the back room, this is the end. The Batman is My dead. Friend. Yeah. The Batman is dead, and this is his funeral. The friends and foes of the departed gather and once they're all there, those gathered begin to speak about the Batman. Selina Kyle tells of how they first met and how they fell in love, but how that love turned sour when, ultimately rejected, Selina opened a pet shop. One night the Batman arrived with a bullet wound for help, and instead Selina let him bleed out in her home. He came to her because he loved her, and she let him die because she loved him. Alfred takes the stage next telling of how he was an actor until it was his turn to take up the Pennyworth role as the gentleman's gentleman to the Waynes after his father, Jarvis Pennyworth's death. Following the brutal murder of the Waynes, Alfred learns to despise the Batman, Bruce's way of dealing with the trauma, but as Bruce's mood swings grew, Alfred and his actor chums all took the roles of supervillains to appease Master Bruce, with Alfred saving the best role for himself, the Joker. Bruce believed it to be real, and years later discovered the truth but it was all a sham. The, however, the actor playing the Riddler became the role also, and the confrontation between the two led to Batman's death. The rest of the guests take turns telling their stories, all giving different accounts of how the Batman died. The ghost of Batman, who's been watching the funeral from the start, sees a door he hadn't noticed before and enters. He sees his mum in a bright light in the darkness, and she asks him what he's learned. That's why people go to their own funeral, to learn. He's learned that the Batman never gives up, in all his lives, he never gives up saving the innocent until he's dead. And in return for never stopping, he doesn't go to heaven, he doesn't go to hell. He gets to spend a few more years with his parents before being the Batman again. He reads his goodnight book from when he was a child and says goodnight to all the things in his life. The book closes, the bat signal is turned off, and the bat turns into a hand and pulls Bruce Wayne into existence once again. Gaiman's open love letter to the Batman, taking its title from the old backup strips in DC Comics Presents, is almost a perfect story. The art is wonderful throughout, with some lovely nods to the past and some great visual gags. The first part of part one has Aparo Bridge, Finger It typewriters, and a wanted poster for Flat Top, a nod to Dick Tracy. All the villains have their own Batmobile-type cars, which I thought were fantastic, and Cubert even manages to change his art to evoke different periods of Bat history. Gaiman's dialogue is brilliant, especially in his treatment of the Joker. I don't randomly kill people. I kill people when it's funny, a line I wish more writers would have tattooed on their heads when writing the character. 
What would be po- what would be funny about killing you? Yeah, Gaiman uses old legends, the death of Robin Hood, who bled out by a woman, and old comics. Where were you on the night the Batman was killed from Batman two hundred ninety one? And blends it into a riveting tale of how the Batman could have met his demise before it sadly becomes another one of those rather overplayed mediations on what a story is and how they work. Gaiman and Grant Morrison both seem fascinated with how stories are constructed and what they mean to a populace, which is great, but it's getting a little tiring to keep reading stories about stories. The ending, where the many lives of the Batman are simply pages in a storybook before Batman dies and is reborn in another universe, or story, to signify that he will never die and the story will continue, was an okay ending, but I can't help feel that this kind of meta-commentary is now getting a tad old. It was really good for its first half, though. Hmm. This story is probably my all-time favourite Batman story, up there with a long Halloween. It's written by one of my favourite writers, features the best work from one of my favourite artists, and even has a cover by my favourite artist. The story features so many Easter eggs and characters and variations of characters and different art styles. The character beats are so emotional that you feel sympathy for even the Joker and Joe Chill. The final sequence features Kubert's best art he's ever drawn, and one of the most emotional sequences in a Batman story. Yes, the metatextual ending may be repetitive by now, but it works, and it milks so much emotion as possible while still squeezing in more Easter eggs. In the list of best Batman stories, this should be in the top three at least. Uh, I love that this has the pencils in the back, which are gorgeous. And I did love all of the little touches that you put in, like his first appearance with Catwoman. She's wearing that funny cat mask that she Mm. did wear. And she changes her age in like two pages. Yeah, in number one. And the Joker, especially, he's driving the Joker-mobile, which was always awesome. But depending on where he is, when he's with Harley Quinn, he's he's drawn to look like the animated version of the Joker. Yeah. And yet further on, when you get the Joker telling of how he killed the Batman, there's a great page... Well, it's the gentleman's gentleman's tale, isn't it? Because it's Alfred as the Joker. But there's a great page where the Joker looks slightly different. He's either the slightly insane Joker of more recent vintage, or he's the the Bob Kane Bill Finger Hmm. version, which I thought... The artwork was was fantastic. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. There's some good ones in the second issue where... um on one page there's three different panels and Batman is different in every single one of them. What, evoking different periods? I think it's on the first page. Oh yeah, the splash, well it's not really a splash page, but yeah, the first page where everyone visits his wake, the Batman in the coffin, in the initial panel he's Frank Miller's Batman. Yeah. And then in the next panel, that's Kelly Kelly Jones, Jones, isn't it? Yeah. And so who is he in the last panel? Just generic Batman. Modern Jim Lee Batman. Oh yeah, yeah, alright, that works. Yeah. And then like, in two different pages he's... Uh, Bob Kane, and then in the next one he's um, Neil Adams. Yeah. Yeah. At the end, when it is all different ones in the shape of the Batman, he goes from Dave McKean to all sorts of other artists. I love that the Batmobile that showed up was the 60s TV show. Yeah. The shot of Gotham City with Commissioner Gordon in front of the Bat signal was Gotham City Nights, or whatever that series was called. Mm. Gotham Nights, wasn't it? It was, the artwork was without fault I thought the artwork was absolutely brilliant I do remember reading something where Neil Gaiman said he was approached and asked to do tell the last Batman story ever which is essentially what this was supposed to be wasn't but it? with it coming right after Batman R.I.P. and them coming back I can't help but feel that 
it was just wiped away. Yeah, well, the title as well evokes whatever happened to The Man of Tomorrow, yeah. which was, of course, Alan Maud's love letter to the end of Superman. Which was what it was modelled on. But that was the end of Superman. Yeah. Whereas this wasn't the end of Batman, and we all knew that. Mm. We all knew Superman was coming back at that point, but it was the post-crisis reboot of Superman. Yeah. This Alan Moore story was a farewell to the Silver Age and the Bronze Age Superman. He was going away. Whereas we knew quite clearly from this, he'd be back. Oh, yeah. And the, the comics audience has grown quite jaded mm. in recent years as well, hasn't it? My third choice is Detective Comics issue 439, cover dated March 1974. The cover by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano is not one of the best. The Batman stands upon a rock, motionless as three armed thugs fire at him whilst fleeing, terrified looks upon their faces. This was the time that Detective Comics was a 100-page giant, so there are some floaty heads at the bottom informing us that the Atom, Hawkman, Doctor Fate, Kid Eternity and Manhunter are also in the issue. Night of the Stalker was scripted by Steve Englehart and plotted and pencilled by Vin and Sal Amendola with inks by Dick Giordano from an incident described by Neil Adams. As night falls on a chilly November night, the dread Batman watches helplessly as a bank robber shoots a woman fleeing to the getaway car. His companion in the car shoots the woman's husband, leaving them both lying in the street in a pool of blood, dying before their child's eyes. Enraged, the Batman strikes, bludgeoning the gunman into unconsciousness before he can get on the car which speeds away. The Batman pursues them, secreting himself on the roof of the car. He is spotted on the roof by a gunman, but when the car stops, suddenly the Batman is nowhere to be seen. The gunman turns to see the masked manhunter on a nearby outcropping and open fire, but again, the Batman is gone. Out of ammo and starting to feel spooked, the men return to the car, which has no keys in the ignition. Standing just across the road, the Batman holds the keys in his hands and then drops them to his feet, daring the men to come for them. Only one does, and his charge propels both he and the Dark Knight off the cliff, leaving the two remaining thieves to grab the keys and run for it. The Batman climbs back up the cliff face, holding the unconscious thug. He pursues the remaining thieves to a hideaway where another thug flees in terror. The Batman catches him, and the fight takes him into a river, where the thug appears to gain the upper hand, strangling the Batman underwater. Flushed with his apparent success, the thug stands jubilant until two gauntleted hands pull him back underwater and punch his lights out. Returning to the hideaway, the last thief stands armed, shaking as he points his weapon at the Batman. The thief, no more than 18, crumbles in fear, and the Batman drops him, untouched, as the police arrive. As swiftly as he arrived, the Batman disappears into the shadows. As dawn breaks, the newspapers are full of how the savage creature of the night apprehended the callous crooks. But alone in his penthouse, the Batman removes his cowl, pondering the lives left in ruin by crime. Boys from today and many years ago. A boy named Bruce Wayne. Um, I thought this issue was really good, for the most part. The art is great, and I think it has a real Neil Adams vibe to it. Yeah, without being a Neil Adams clone. Yeah. Um, but in the first sequence, Batman's useless. Uh, he just stands around and watches these people die as he remembers his parents dying. He's just, like, standing around, and then he cries a bit, and then he jolts a bit. <laughs> um, granted, the rest of the issue was great and felt like a horror movie-type story, to the, to the crux, at least, Yeah. and showed how Batman didn't give up. 
There were some great Batman moments, like how he pulled the guy into the water with him. Yeah, that was cool. And the rest of the story does make me forgive it for having such a useless Batman in the opening. Um, I can I can get behind your criticisms of the opening. Mm. But for me, it was more a case of... If you imagine he's at the end of our street, stood on the funeral house. Yeah. And he sees this crime happen at the end of our street, down the cul-de-sac. So our street's not big enough that he wouldn't be able to see that. He would. Mm. But it's big enough that he wouldn't be able to get there in between both gunshots. And that's my reading of it. He takes off... When he hears the first gunshot, but he doesn't. He and all of around. this, well, my reading of this is all of this is playing out in his head as he gets there, because when he we finally see him jumping on the guy, he's right over the top of him, yeah. which he plainly is nowhere near him in panel two of the f- second page of the story. But in the pages in between, he's still standing on the roof. Yeah, if they depicted him as running, yeah, why this was going on, then you probably could have bought it a bit more, hmm. because. In my head, that sets up Batman's motivation here much more. It's not that he killed his mum, which is tragic enough as far as Batman's concerned. It's that he didn't get there quick enough to prevent them killing his dad as well. Yeah. That, to me, is what really sets this issue in motion. But I get what you're saying, that the art does not substantiate my reading of it... But my reading of it is how I make that opening work, if you get what I mean. So you have to make it up. <clears throat> yeah, so I don't disagree with what you're saying, but in my head I've always made it work like that. Yeah. In that he was far enough away that between the first gunshot and the second gunshot he didn't get there in time. But he was close enough to be able to see it all happen. And that was my interpretation of it. But yeah, your criticism of it is valid. It does look like he stands there and has a moment of origin <laughs> reflection before he actually jumps into action and does anything about it. Yeah. Which is fair enough. I, I thought this was a wonderful story that serves to show whilst the Batman is the Dark Knight detective, he is also the masked manhunter. And this chilling tale of an enraged Batman relentlessly pursuing three murderous gunmen through the dark forest is one of the best depictions of the character as unstoppable vengeance machine. One of the things that struck me about this story was the Batman's portrayal in this issue. A grim, unspeaking force of nature, similar to the Terminator, in that he absolutely will not stop until he has achieved his goal. Engelhart wisely has the Batman say nothing in this story, although according to Engelhart himself, he did add a few thought and speech balloons which editor Archie Goodwin removed, an editorial decision that, with hindsight, Engelhart agreed with wholeheartedly. In fact, the Batman reminds me of Jason from the Friday the 13th movies in this story, in the manner in which he appears and disappears and seemingly cannot be killed. The character's grim demeanour is leavened by the ending in which the Batman lets his guard down to allow himself a moment of humanity. I think that what gives this tale its real power is the idea, not substantiated in the story, I admit, that this is the first time Bruce has allowed himself to cry since he was eight years old. The art, as Michael has said, is excellent. Very Neil Adams influence, but no less effective for that. I first read this story in the library in the late 1980s. Around 1989, and the success of the Tim Burton Batman movie, Titan Books released a series of black and white reprint graphic novels, and this story was reprinted in the first volume, Vow from the Grave. It featured an introduction by Jonathan Ross and four other tales, the title story, Ghost of the Killer Skies, Night of the Reaper, and The House That Haunted Batman. It was this story that had the most impact on me. 
Speaking of Tim Burton, this was one of the stories producer Michael Uslan gave to Burton in the production of the movie from Batman of 1989, and he adapted it for the opening of that film. But in true Burton fashion, completely missed the point by having Batman be dumb enough to actually get shot in the first few moments of the movie, and just watch the people get mugged without doing anything to stop it. The opening of that film is worse than this. You've seen that movie, haven't you? I can't remember. He watches the couple get mugged. Yeah. From the top of a building. And then he's turned around and leaves. <laughs> he doesn't try to prevent the mugging. Yeah. And then, when he lands on the, the roof, and the guy just shoots him and he falls down dead. Yeah. And then he gets back up again. Wouldn't it have been much more scary for him to... They should have shot it like this. I've always thought they should have shot it like this. You should have the crooks in the foreground counting the money. Right. And in the background, we see Batman land. And he okay. holds the cape out. The crook goes... Did you just hear something? He turns round. Right. And then the camera angle changes, so they are now looking at us again in the camera, but they're looking at the direction Batman was. And then he appears behind them again. And then he appears behind them when they say, there's nothing there. Yeah. And then when they turn round, he punches the crap out of them, rather than getting shot in the opening of his first movie. But that's just one of the many problems I have with Tim Burton's depiction of Batman. Would have been better if he was attacked by a shark. That would have been awesome. <laughs> if the flying sharks, like in Saga, yeah. were attacking. Uh, this story was remade by Darwin Cook in Solo Issue 5 in 2004. It has a bit more minor profanity and a bit more character development for the crooks. And as usual for Cook, the art is art deco magnificent. But it lacks something. And it's hard to put my finger on exactly what. It's more modern, with no captions, more realistic dialogue, and a far more chilling final confrontation when the Batman putting the final crook's gun to his own forehead and daring him to pull the trigger. But Cook removes the final element, that the last crook is only a kid himself, and the final scene where Alfred witnesses Bruce mourning the night's events lacks the punch of the original. But I am interested in which one you prefer. Um, I prefer the Darwin Cook one. Why? I think his art is great that I prefer that over anything. Yeah, and yeah, well, his art's brilliant. Even though the story does miss out on some of the Kill Batman bits and the actual issue, like the, the water bit. <laughs> yeah. But there is something about Cook's writing and his artwork that makes me prefer his stuff over anything he covers. I think my problem with it, if he'd have just told a different version of the same story yeah. instead of adapting that story, I'd have been okay with it. But I think he loses the point of the ending. Yeah. Well, that's just my interpretation. Oh, yeah, the art's fantastic. I've, I've got no quibbles about the artwork. It's the original purple-gloved Batman, isn't it? Yeah, as well. He does draw him with the original purple gloves. That yeah. was a neat, a neat trick. A neat touch. Despite so. him being the blue cape Batman. Well, yeah, but it's Darwin Cook. It can take place anywhere, can't it? Probably takes place in New Frontier continuity. Probably Darwin does, Cook. Yeah. Yeah. Everything takes place in... Everything takes place in New Frontier continuity. Even Parker. Even Parker. That'd be cool. It would. Parker and Slam Bradley. <laughs> Yeah, Parker Slam Bradley after Parker. Yeah. Uh, my next pick is a three-part story from Detective Comics 858 to 860, centering on Batwoman, written by Greg Rucker with art by J.H. Williams III. Uh, the covers are all examples of the kind of dreary poster covers synonymous of the era. Growing up on military base after military base as a young girl with a father who was constantly away fighting, the only constant thing in Kate Kane's life was her sister. That was until her sister Beth and her mother were killed in an organised kidnapping, with only Kate being rescued alive by her father's team. 
Years later, Kate would be separated from the army and kicked out of military school for being gay. Upon telling her father, he asked her why she didn't lie to them and tell them she wasn't. He was proud of her for being for telling the truth and keeping her honour. As time passed, Kate lived a life she'd missed out on whilst being in the army and would be pulled over for speeding. The officer who pulled her over was GCPD officer Rene Montoya and the two would start a relationship together. That relationship would end when Rene walked out on Kate after an argument about Kate's life and Kate accusing her of being afraid that the police would find out about her being gay. That night, whilst on the phone apologising to Rene, Kate would find herself being mugged, but she took down all the men with her army training. She turned to see Batman watching her. Shocked, she fell to the floor, and Batman helped her up before grappling away. The meeting would inspire Kate to take up a vigilante career until her dad found out. After, the, after an argument, Kate told him that she finally found a way to serve after being separated from the army. Her dad agrees to help her, and using military equipment and training, Kate would spend two years travelling the world, training. Upon her return, her father gave her a new costume and a name, so that everyone would know whose side she was on. She became Batwoman. Uh, this was a really rather excellent three-part story. Essentially, Batwoman begins... And I'm I am intrigued to learn your reasons for picking it as Batman is a minimal presence, although his influence is magnificently spelt out in the scene where Kate Kane describes the bat signal as a call to arms. The story plays out in two strands, with the present-day material depicted in the glorious, almost abstract, very detailed painting work of J.H. Williams III, whilst the flashback stuff showing Kate's secret origin is drawn in a far more familiar and traditional comic book style in terms of panelling and layout, reminding me very much of the work of David Mastuelli and Alex Malieve. I have to say, this was the part of the story I found more engrossing and involving. The present-day material I had very little interest in, largely because I suspect this played into a larger story that I had very little clue of what was actually going on. In every other respect, writer Greg Rucker does an excellent job of colouring in Kate Kane's past and her background. The revelation she is gay, well, I don't know if this was a revelation or not, but it was to me in story, was well handled, and the tackling of the don't-ask-don't-tell issue of gays in the military very well done. I particularly liked her father was accepting of it, and even accepting of her ultimate decision to do something with her life to help after the death of her mother and twin sister. His role as her Alfred was a lovely moment in the story, comfortably getting us past the cliched moments traditional to a story like this where one expects him to disapprove of her actions. That he even designed her suit, which is a wonderful costume both in design and colour, shows his commitment and using his own military connections to help augment her own skills after she is separated from the army was a nice touch. A great piece of work by this creative team. Her motivations for becoming a vigilante are well crafted and believable, as her looking up to the Batman as inspiration gives her life a meaning she thought taken away from her. The issue, which could have become a very special episode, kind of preachiness is thankfully not that at all. It's there, it's a prime story motivator, changing the course of the central character's life, but Rucker acknowledges it and moves on, both as a writer and with his characters, with neither Kane nor her father getting on the soapbox about it. Rucker simply presents it as part of his story and as part of his character's background and lets the reader decide where they stand on the argument. An excellent story showing Batman's influence on the people around him. Greg Rucker and J.H. Williams' story arc, Elegy, has been a favourite of mine ever since I read it in the British reprint series, Batman Legends, mostly because of the art. But Batwoman has always been one of my favourite Bat-family characters, up there with Nightwing. 
The framing sequences around these issues act as an epilogue to the Elegy story, and finally answer the questions to who Alice, the main villain of the story, really was. Her sister. The origin itself finally gives answers to her character that was first introduced in Greg Rucker's Rene Montoya story in 52. We finally find out about, about her relationship with Rene and how she became Batwoman. Rucker's handling of gay characters is also pretty good. Whilst her origin does reply, rely on the fact that she she's gay, it isn't, hey, she's gay, we're diverse. <laughs> it's just a thing that starts a series of events that all tie into her story. Does this not go back to what we were talking about last week? That Byrne doesn't get the credit for, and Warren Ellis did get the credit for, writing characters who were gay, yeah. as opposed to writing gay characters. Mm. And essentially, Greg Rucker does a, the same job here, and does a great job with it. Well, in the period of what, uh, three years, DC went from this to what they do to what's his face in Earth 2. I don't know what they've done to Alan Scott in Earth 2. Where it was, they had all this build up and hype surrounding. Oh, we're gonna have a new gay character, but right. it's straight in our previous ones. It's a character you all know, and he's been well established, but now he's gay. You're gonna buy our comics. Yeah. Oh, this will break the internet. Where it became. I mean, the writing in that has been quite good. Yeah. But the way they hyped it up was gay character, yeah. not character who is gay. And it's. I always. I always think that I'd find that insulting. Because I think we've said before, James Bond as a character, he's not defined by his heterosexuality. No, it's That's just a large part him. of his character, yeah. but it's not the only thing about his character. It's one of three or four things you think of when you think of James Bond. Yeah. And it's... I, I don't know whether I'd be offended if I was gay and they were just promoting gay characters without actually doing any serious investigation into whether this was a valid interpretation of same. But this was really good. Mm. This was an excellent... That that part of her character was just part of her character. Yeah. Despite the fact we've drawn attention to it by talking about it. <laughs> Never mind. Rucker would continue to write Batman, but Jock would take over art duties after this story. I'm sure it's good, but after reading the first issue, I have no interest in it because of the change of art. J.H. Williams would then go on to write a Batwoman series of her own, but it would be plagued by editorial and late scripts that it was postponed to be a new 52 series. The new series would be completely written by Williams with a changing cast of artists, including Williams himself, until Williams left the book recently after DC refusing to let him write a story in which Kate gets married. Apparently they're not against gay marriage, they're just against marriage full stop. Yeah. That's Dandy Dio's With Barry Allen. Line of it. Yeah. Which is just ridiculous. <laughs> It's an editorial edict. There is no marriage in the new 52. Yeah. It's an editorial edict. There is no underpants in the new 52. <laughs> See, these are true facts. So the DC belief is that gay characters sell, but marriages don't. Yeah. The DC belief at the moment is apparently these ridiculous rules are what makes our universe great. Yeah. No. Not so much. Barry Allen, probably the only comics character whose marriage worked. Well, isn't Williams' argument, he's had this story planned for months. And DC have DC said, have okay. known he's had this story planned for months. Yeah. And they've agreed to it, and then at the last minute they've changed their mind. Mm. To me, I'm sorry, that doesn't sound like we've had this as an editorial edit from the beginning. It sounds like. Because surely, if they had... Then J.H. No Williams III would have said, oh, right, well, I can't do my story then. I will change my story. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes at uh, DC anymore. My fourth pick is the also classic There Is No Hope 
in Crime Alley. Originally published in Detective Comics 457, cover dated March 1976, and sporting a cover by Dick Giordano. It's an interesting and eye-catching cover. A close-up of the Batman in profile and in the head, the image of Joe Chill running away from the dead bodies of Thomas and Martha Wayne as Bruce kneels by their side, weeping. The story inside was written by Denny O'Neill and also drawn by Dick Giordano. So essentially that was the cover. Yeah, I saw it actually. 21 years ago, this neighbourhood was the dwelling place of the rich, and soon to be rich. A place of gourmet restaurants and fashionable theatres, of elegant women and suave men. But the dry rot of time set in, and the laughter stopped, and the lights dimmed, and those elegant women and suave men sought their pleasures elsewhere, and now only the forlorn and the desperate walk these streets. For one night, two brutal slayings occurred, signalling the beginning of the end. The area known as Park Row acquired a new name, Crime Alley. And there is no hope in Crime Alley. On this night every year, Bruce Wayne leaves the cave to go to a specific place, a place he has never even shared with Alfred. His destination is Park Row, now known as Crime Alley, and he is in search of a specific elderly lady, Leslie Tompkins. He tracks her down, about to be mugged for the money she's carrying, money earmarked to help lost and wayward children. The Batman swoops in, placing a two-footed kick to one of the thug's head, but the other pulls a gun and points it at the Batman. Enraged, the Batman asks, You dare pull a gun on me? Pull a gun on me? Here? Do you? Do you? He pummels the crook repeatedly, until Leslie places a frail hand on his arm, asking him to stop. The Batman calms himself, dropping the thug to the floor. I've been expecting you, Leslie says. Every year on this day, you come and visit me, although I confess I don't know why. A reminder, the Batman replies, of my beginning and my probable end. The Batman asks why Leslie continues to live in Crime Alley. Once, years ago, she replies, I saw a hideous thing. A child whose parents were murdered before his eyes. I've never forgotten that lad, and I've devoted my life to preventing such tragedy. The Batman smiles a sad smile and kisses Leslie gently on the head. For as long as people like Leslie Tompkins live there, then there is hope in Crime Alley. I, I did quite like this issue. It's um, a great issue. It's Yeah, but it felt a lot like Night of the Stalker. Well, I think that's why in my head yeah. these two are favourites. Thematically... They're both flip sides of the same coin, aren't they? Mm. Um, it is just Batman reminded of his parents' death and him losing his cool and beating up bad guys. Yeah. I mean, at least in the other one, he was a lot more controlled. Yes, he does pummel the guy who pulls the gun on him. But my... Well, I this. My, interpret- my reading of that was he's pulling a gun on him in pretty much the exact yeah. place that his parents were gunned down. And although the crook doesn't know it, if there's anywhere you're going to press all of Batman's buttons, it would be in that moment. Yeah. So, I, I buy it when the Batman loses his cool. Mm. And I like a Batman that loses his cool. I don't, I'm not a big fan of the ultra-controlled, robotic, knows-everything Batman yeah. that we seem to get an awful lot of at the moment. I also like the little um, relationship with him and Leslie Tompkins. Yeah. Even though she would change so many times. Well... In this this original depict, this was really just explaining what happened to Bruce after his parents were killed. Because over the years, yeah. they've had to layer more and more onto that, haven't they? Until they ultimately came up with the best solution 
the Waynes bequeathed him to Alfred should anything happen to them. That's the simplest and easiest solution. He's no other relatives. Alfred looks after him. Yeah. But pre-crisis, sorry, they couldn't do that because Alfred was not part of the Bat mythos from the beginning. Right. And in this story, Alfred has no idea where he goes on this night. Right. Which was the only sticking point for me with this. Yeah. You'd think Alfred would know of all people. people. But so to cover that continuity gap they created that Leslie Cott Tompkins was a social worker who helped Bruce through the trauma and arranged for Alfred to adopt him or at the very least be his legal guardian. Yeah. Whereas now there's no real need for Leslie Tompkins anymore because Alfred takes on that role but they've never really got rid of her because this is such a well-remembered story. Um, And it is a a well-remembered story, certainly by me. It is, like Michael said, it's a companion piece to Night of the Stalker in that it shows the human side of the Batman. In this story, like that one, we see a smaller, more intimate side to the Dark Knight, a man who does not forget who he really does this for. The inhabitants of Crime Alley aren't just statistics to him. He cares for them and they for him. And we're also given some new wrinkles into his origins, that it was Leslie Tompkins who helped him after that night's tragic events. Newer readers, more familiar with more current takes on the legend, may wonder why Alfred has no idea about the significance of this night. But (coughs) in the original pre-crisis continuity, Alfred showed up at Wayne Manor long after Batman and Robin had begun their crime-fighting careers. And it was only Frank Miller's lack of research when developing Year One that led to Bruce's Gentleman's Gentleman becoming a permanent fixture. O'Neill's dialogue, I thought, was particularly good in this issue, especially the ending. But the scene that sent chills down the spine is the moment where Gooch, the thug in the alley, pulls a gun on the Batman. Rarely do we see the Batman literally shaking with rage, as we do in this story. It's so palpable in his anger we almost feel pity for Gooch as the Batman pounds the man into unconsciousness he literally bitch slaps him at the bottom of page 9 he grabs hold of the guy's collar and backhands him right across the face before launching into a series of punishing blows that must have given this guy some kind of brain damage or blood clot or something if you were going to take it down that road. How, how much money did his health insurance uh, yeah, much, cost? Well, all broken up about that man's rights, as we'll cover in another issue. We also feel the weight of the Batman's mission when Leslie says she hopes one day he will not be needed, and the Batman agrees with her. This one moment gives us such a great look into the psyche of the character that one day he will be able to stop but that such a day is a long way off if it ever comes. Dick Giordano's art again shows the immense shadow Neil Adams has cast over the character, particularly in the 70s, but it's exquisite in its own right. I especially like that the splash page is the same basic image as the cover. That kind of funny how the, the guy's name is Gooch. <laughs> Gooch. Like the handbag. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Yeah. Uh, I believe I have mentioned before a UK reprint title called The Superheroes. This was a 52-page monthly magazine with magnificently painted covers that printed three DC stories per issue, normally a Superman, a Batman, and another hero such as Flash, Wonder Woman, or Green Lantern. Volume 2, number 2, was where I first read this with a cover date of November 1981, and I was made up to finally track down a full run of this series early this year on eBay. As with most UK mags, it was much larger than US comics, and this story especially suits the monochrome format. 
In fact, all the early Neil Adams issues were published in this magazine, and to this day, I prefer Adams' Batman work in black and white. Despite having this story in both the greatest Batman stories ever told and the Batman in the 70s trades, I still dug out my old copies of the superheroes to reread this. Particularly interesting is there's a Superman advert. Never say yes to a cigarette. That's why I don't smoke, dude. Because <laughs> Superman told me. <coughs> Superman told me not to. That and the fact that it stinks. There is that. But uh, it's your choice. I'm not an anti-smoking Nazi. <laughs> it's, you want to smoke, feel free. Again, this story was adapted into an episode of Batman the Animated Series entitled Appointment in Crime Alley, with Leslie Tompkins being portrayed by Diana Muldower, better known as Dr. Pulaski, in Star Trek The Next Generation. Writer Mike W. Barr would reference this issue repeatedly in his Batman run in the 80s, specifically in the Batman special number one, The Player on the Other Side, and his detective comics run with Alan Davis, in particular issue 474, entitled My Beginning and My Probable End. Uh, my next choice is Batman Incorporated, issue six. Incorporated. Yeah, yeah a, bit, a bit of singing. After hours. <laughs> um, the issue was called... Nick Tomorth and was written by Grant Morrison with art by Chris Burnham, coloured by Nathan Furburn and lettered by Pat Brossow. Uh, two covers adorn Batman. Yeah, I see that Michael's hardcover is autographed by Yannick Paquette. And Cameron Stewart. And Cameron. Where's Cameron Stewart? His is on a few pages inside. Alright, oh, okay. Right. He, apparently, he couldn't do it on that same page. Alright, oh, yeah. Cameron, right. Cameron Stewart's art signature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two covers adorn Batman Incorporated issue 6, which was cover dated June 2011. The first is okay. Batman runs to the readers, followed by various members of Batman Incorporated in the background. It's a fine piece of art by Chris Burnham, who looks a little bit like Frank Quitler, but it's a pretty boring cover. The variant by Fraser Irvin is just a headshot of the Batman and Quarterfaces of the Incorporated crew behind him. Burnham wins by dint of being less boring than this one. <laughs> I like, I like Chris Burnham. Uh, Chris Burnham's art was Chris Burnham who drew this issue. Yeah, his art is brilliant. Yeah, I just think that's a boring cover. He's very. When it gets to the second volume of Batman Incorporated, is that not this? No, this is the first. So is this pre New Fifty Two? Yeah. Right. Um, as he becomes a main artist, he does get very um, experimental with these layouts. Oh, very good. Which Ooh. is pretty good. Okay. Nero Nixo, the Night Eye, presents Joe Average and the Average Joe's evidence of how Bruce Wayne is handling Batman and Batman Incorporated. Earlier, during an interview about Batman Incorporated and the recent return of the dead Batman and the multiple Batman around the world, Bruce Wayne is attacked by the emoticon men outside of Wayne Tower. I love that. <laughs> but they're taken care of by Alfred and the newly made Batbots. Later, Batman Wayne and Batman Grayson, as well as Robin Wayne, help Commissioner Gordon find the dead body of the man who framed him, before returning to the Batcave to assign Red Robin Drake to join the Outsiders stealth team of Batman Incorporated, and informs them of their new enemy, Leviathan. Batman Grayson and Robin Wayne find Bruce posting conspiracy theories about Batman and himself on forums under different usernames and ask him why he's building an army. He tells them that when he was bouncing through time, he saw a dark side induced vision of the future and created Batman Incorporated to prepare for it. Nick Toe gives the average Joes more evidence, and they see that wherever Bruce Wayne goes, more Batmen show up. In one instance, in Paris, Batman Wayne and Nightrunner find a truck full of dead bodies and children possessed by Leviathan. The average Joes tell Nick Toe that in a few hours they'll be in a meeting with crime bosses, and if Batman can be everywhere at once, then he should prove it. 
Hearing this, Nikto reveals himself as Batman and takes down the average Joes. Meanwhile, on a space station, Leviathan and Otto Nets discuss Batman's efforts to build an army and prepare the Leviathan virus. This was better. Yeah. This was more than Morrison I like reading. Big ideas, cool concepts, but overall a story that hangs together. Morrison introduces the concept of Batman Incorporated, an idea that Batman as an ideal is spread around the world, and Batman has taken it on as a decent idea and expanded and made them organised. As someone who likes the Batman rather than a Batman, one would think I wouldn't like this, but Morrison takes this concept and makes it work. He makes us see that Bruce would think this was a good idea. Yes, it plays into Morrison's take on Batman as all-knowing, especially the framing sequence with Nero Nikto providing Joe Average and the Average Joes, which is a great name, by the way, information on Batman and Bruce Wayne, only for it to be revealed that Nikto is Batman. But again, this plays into the Batman of London or Batman of Madrid idea Morrison has been following throughout his run. There are also some wonderful touches within the story itself, which, unusually for Morrison, is quite straightforward. Exactly why Bruce Wayne would out himself as Batman's supplier and advocate is addressed, and there is a great idea here that Bruce goes trolling around on the internet under fake names, creating conspiracy theories and wild-ass ideas about Batman, even going so far as to create a Bruce Wayne is Batman thread with proof, only to debunk it in another thread under another screen name, again with proof as to why Batman cannot possibly be Bruce Wayne. Alfred is ineffably cool. There are some mysteries for the future. Who is Wingman? What has Bruce told only to Tim? But they sell the idea of a larger storyline rather than being deliberately confusing. I liked the subtleties as well. Dick's Batman costume is like the animated series. Bruce's is more Tim Burton. Morrison doesn't seem to be paying any attention to the continuity of the other books or the New 52, but because I didn't know at the time that this was not New 52, but that's probably a good thing. And the only bum note of typical Morrison nastiness, the kids in the truck decapitating people under the name Leviathan. But on the whole, this was one of the better Morrison stories I've read. Well, the whole children thing, as shocking as that is, it's more of for the story. It's more a tease for the upcoming arc, presumably. Yeah, but... I love that Nero Nicto means Dark Knight. Yeah. That was quite cool. I don't... I, honestly, I've I've read that several times and worked it out. I don't see where the link is. Is it not just a foreign language? Have you never looked up what Nero means? You know, you know, languages? I actually haven't. I mean, I, <laughs> no. I, I presume that Nero's probably dark in <laughs> Spanish or something. I, I guess something yeah. like that. Batman Incorporated is the best of Morrison's Batman titles and is a much lighter, happier story than some of the other stories, such as R.I.P. And this is one of the best standalone issues. Before this was launched, Morrison described it as Call of Duty mixed with a Breed on the Bold. Yeah, I can, I can get that. It looks at Batman Incorporated in general and shows some of the members whilst expanding on Leviathan and setting up all the pieces for the finale a few issues down the line. This is Chris Burnham's second issue of Volume 1, and he will become the main artist of Volume 2. And his Frank Quitley-inspired art brings a brighter tone to the book. You know how he pointed out the difference in costumes? Yeah. That is very helpful in... Telling who's who. In Batman and Robin, when he comes back and they're fighting side by side. Um, I, I didn't even notice that the back of this has panels from old comics. Yeah, as to what influenced the characters. Yeah, the backing stories. up where the characters come from and stuff. That's from the Batman Nobody Knows. Yeah. Batman is Marmadali, Jim Brown is Shaft and Superfly all in one. That's, that's pretty cool. 
Oh, I'm going to have a look at that at a later date. You know, the very last thing on there yeah. is Grant Morrison saying, it'll all make sense soon. <laughs> Doesn't he have to say that about all of his stories? I, I, he does, yeah. My next pick is from one of the greatest runs in the history of the character. Writer Steve Englehart and artist Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin didn't arrive on Detective Comics as a team, nor did they depart as one. In fact, Englehart wrote the issues on his way out of the door to live in Europe for a while and had no idea who the artist would end up being. And thus some kind of magical comics alchemy happened in which they created some of the finest, most referenced and reprinted works in the Batman canon, introducing Silver St. Cloud, showing a fully functional Batman and Robin team, and along the way creating the almost definitive Joker story. But my pick isn't that. It's the Deadshot Ricochet from Detective Comics 474, cover dated December 1977. The cover by Rogers and Austin shows the Batman reflected in Deadshot's faceless mask as he leaps at Deadshot as the Master Assassin opens fire. A couple of interesting things about the cover. In the scope, the Batman is merely a shadow. Also, the logo is Batman's Detective Comics as the titular hero wraps his cape around said logo. The cover copy simply states Deadshot's Revenge. Truth be told, it's not the greatest of the Rogers Austin covers, but it's still pretty damn good. After wrapping up the case of the Malay Penguin with the Batman, Robin is summoned back to the Teen Titans, leaving Batman to once again go it alone. The aforementioned Penguin, a.k.a. Oswald Chesterfield Cobblepot, is duly dispatched to Gotham Maximum Security Prison, where he is roomed next to Floyd Lawton, a.k.a. Deadshot, and he reveals that the Penguin will not be kept long in a cage. Apparently his monocle, when held correctly, converts light to a laser, but before he can use it, Lawton swipes it from an overconfident cobblepot and makes his own getaway. The next day, Bruce meets his lady, Silver St. Cloud, as she shows off her work, arranging a convention for office supplies. By means of plot expediency, Commissioner Gordon is there to tell Bruce about Lawton's escape, as Lawton was last seen in the area. That night, the Batman prowls, looking for Deadshot and remembering when they last met. Deadshot had almost killed the Batman that time with his deadly accuracy, and he almost does it here too, firing a warning shot that he's back for revenge. Caught monologuing, the Batman lands the first blow, but Deadshot has new tricks up his arsenal, and the fight takes them over the convention centre and crashing through its skylight. A deadly game of cat and mouse ensues, with Silver present to watch the whole show. With Deadshot seemingly uncurring if civilians are hurt, the Batman strikes, luring Deadshot in and moving in on him, trapping him in the workings of an oversized typewriter. As Lawton is restrained, Silver calls out to the Batman, and he looks at her for just long enough. It was Bruce, Silver thinks. I did like this issue again, but because you hyped it up that much... It's the only trouble, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, I didn't think it was as good as you said it was. Um, it also felt more like a chapter in a story, which it was. Which, yeah, arguably. Rather than just a single issue, but it works either way. Um, it was pretty cool seeing Batman smile and laugh. What I really did like about this was Batman and Deadshot fighting on a giant typewriter in the Batman 60s way. Yeah, it was it was an exceptionally good way of paying nods to the past Yeah, without being overt about it and without destroying that he was now a much darker character than he had been in the 50s and 60s. Although reading it in hindsight, I couldn't help but look at Silver St. Cloud and thinking, oh, I've seen you with your throat cut up. Yeah, which we've never got an ending to, have we? But, oh no, the scripts are all done. Are they? Mm, Apparently. Fair enough. Uh, One of the best of the Engelhart-Rogers-Austin collaborations, I think, rebranding an old villain without tossing out his old motivations. 
In fact, this entire story is a love letter to the Silver Age with oversized props that actually work. Shout-outs to Mort Weisinger, Gardner Fox, old girlfriend Julie Madison, and references to Deadshot's last appearance in Batman issue 59, as well as tying it all up with the early days when Bruce Wayne hung around with Commissioner Gordon to keep up on the latest events, paying wonderful homage to the fact that the very first scene in a Batman comic was Bruce and Gordon chatting. There's another wonderful scene at the beginning of the issue where Batman and Robin have fun hanging out together with Bruce teasing Dick about his many female relationships, Wonder Girl and the Harlequin and name Jet. Yeah, presumably. And Dick gets his own back calling Bruce an old timer. Whilst this is a single parter, one of the few in Engelhart's run, numerous subplots are mentioned or set up. The Batman confronts Congressman Rupert Thorne about the cease and desist order he's placed on him and warns Thorne that the Batman knows he's as corrupt as a dodgy hard drive and that he's watching him. Thorne has his own problems, namely the ghost of Hugo Strange, all references to previous issues, and there is a brief two-panel appearance by the Joker setting up the next two issues. The main subplot, though, is Silver St. Cloud, a serious girlfriend for Bruce and someone he gives serious thought to being with. Engelhart wrote an all-too-human Batman, and for the first time in years gave Bruce Wayne some face time, treating him not just as a daytime mask for the Batman, as he is referred to in this story. But it's the art for which this is really remembered by. Rogers and Austin portray the Batman as a constantly moving shadow, the cape always draped around him flamboyantly and often covering his face. There are other lovely artistic touches as well, such as whenever the Batman is mentioned to Bruce Wayne, his face is half covered in shadow. But the reason I picked this is because as a kid I just thought Deadshot was cool. He was a great villain with a simple gimmick. He was a dead shot. He's the inverse of Bruce, a formerly rich playboy turned to crime. And as such, so much can be done with him as a villain. I really did like his look as well. Yeah. I love his costume and what he looks was like. Was this the first appearance of that? This was the first appearance of his new look, yeah. Because in the flashbacks he's wearing a suit and a hat. Yeah, because he was a performer, wasn't he? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I thought he was great. And I think the current redesign of him has just gone a bit over the top. What is that? Essentially it's the same, but it's got a lot more pouches and padding on it. Oh, right, it's, okay. it's just more lines as well. Like Mysterio's 90s look. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Surely there must come a point where you have to realise you can't improve on perfection. Yeah. But nobody's told Jim Lee that. <laughs> Back in 1981, the aforementioned publishers of the superheroes published DC pocket books about the same size as the Blue Ribbon Digests, but with cardstock covers. These were in full colour, very unusual, about 100 pages, and carried a 75 pence price tag. The entire Inglehart Rogers Austin run was published in Batman Pocketbook number two, one of my favourite comics ever, and it was here I first read this story and the others in the series. To fit in the 100 page limit, the publisher excised a few pages, the surreal trip from the dead yet live and the splash page to side of the Joker, and when reading these stories now, it's still odd to me that those pages are there. These are still some of my favourite Batman stories ever. Unlike a lot of the stories I've picked so far, this is very much a Marvel-style book, complete with subplots, carryovers and references to previous stories. As such, I heartily recommend picking up Strange Apparitions, which collects this run, or the recent Marshall Rogers hardcover, which collects these issues and most of the rest of his Batman work. As Michael pointed out, though, it is very much a chapter in an overarching storyline. 
Yeah. Speaking of chapters in an overall story, my next pick is Batman Issue 5 from March 2012. Face the Court is a chapter of Scott Steiner and Greg Capullo's first part of their first arc, The Court of Owls, which concluded in The Night of Owls. Snyder's run was a breath of fresh air in the Batman series. While I'm a huge fan of Morrison's run, it was taking up too much room in the DC-verse, with other Bat books either being not as good or being written to fit around Morrison's stuff. Writer Scott Snyder jumped in with artist Jock for the Black Mirror before starting again with issue 1 as part of the new 52, with Spawn Haunt artist Greg Capullo. After leaving Haunt, Capullo was offered two jobs, Avengers vs. X-Men for Marvel or Batman for DC. Capolo obviously went for Batman. A man of intelligence. <laughs> Given yes. the choice between those two, what would you go for? All this. Now, and that was a great decision for both him and the readers. There is ne- there has never been a bad issue of this run. Each one is as good as the last, and the art is always cartoony, but not in a Bruce Tim or Darwin Cook way, but in a gritty, dark and realistic way. Think if the Dark Knight movies were covered in the animated series. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, that's actually pretty good, yeah. yeah. One of the only problems with this run, however, is that it is arc after arc. The Court of Owls led into the Knight of Owls, which led into the death of the family, which led into a two-part Clayface story, which led into the current zero-year story. Despite this, there are still some really good single issues that fit into those chapters. Have you not been listening to Fatman on Batman? No. Greg Capullo and Scott Snyder did not get on. You said, yeah. At first... It was a fascinating story. Greg Capullo's one of those guys, apparently, who likes... You give, you send in the script with the dialogue, yeah. saying, on this page, this happens. On this page, this happens, and this is the dialogue a on Jeff this page. A style script. <clears throat> yeah, and he draws it. Scott Snyder apparently sent him a 40-page script <laughs> for a 22-page comic. Ultimately getting to the point where Scott Snyder apparently sent Dandy Dio an email yeah. saying, one of us is going to have to leave this book. <laughs> And now they've got to the point where I think they are, they are one of the best Batman creative teams ever. Well, the best buddies as well. Yeah, they are best mates. All, yeah. all the Twitter is being with, oh, I'm in Ireland with my best buddy Scott Snyder yeah. and this is... And it's it's really fascinating to, to see how it's how that has evolved, how Capullo has lightened Snyder up. Yeah. But Snyder is still a little bit wound up. He's still a little bit tight. But yeah. I, like, I like I love their relationship. It's very I think good. their art and how it's laid out and what it looks like is a lot better now. Yeah, now well, he's probably got more freedom now. Yeah. Now Snyder knows how he likes to work. And they're probably used to it more. Yeah. Essentially, all you need to know for this issue is that Batman was researching the Court of Owls and got attacked by the Hitman, the Talon. The cover shows Batman bleeding out on the floor with said talent attacking from behind. Um, Greg Capullo's been putting it in the back of the net on this series, and this cover is no exception. Batman 5 had seven variant covers, which I couldn't be asked looking at. <laughs> I did, however, look at them. <laughs> I love your commitment <laughs> to the show, dude. And there you go, Thusler. Well, I did have to make up for Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> the digital deluxe version just has a different colour palette. A cover by Chris Burnham showing Batman in a maze surrounded by owls. And the rest of them are all the uh, Capolo covers, except one is black and white, another is red, and another is blue, and another is grey. Excellent, good. Value for money, though. Yeah, yeah. The thing with this cover is it certainly is a sign of the times. Yeah. Batman's on the floor bleeding and stabbed. Yeah, we we never got a bleed and a stab Batman back in the old days. So that's (laughs) why I argue the old days Batman was cooler. Yeah. He wasn't dumb enough to let stuff like this happen to him. But, as you'll see later in the issue... Yeah. It's been eight days since anyone last saw Batman. In that time, the GCPD and the Bat family have been looking for him. What they don't know is that he's hiding. Is that he's hiding in the shadows of a maze. 
He stumbles on a fountain surrounding a huge owl statue again and tries to stop himself from drinking the water. It's probably drugs, but he's too thirsty to curse. He heads back into the shadows before an old camera takes a picture of him. On the walls surrounding the camera are photographs of all the people at the court have taken here and killed. He turns and sees the court watching him and chases after them only for them to disappear as he jumps through them. As he does, the talon stalks him from the shadows, carries on walking through the model of Gotham and into a full room of coffins, each belonging to a talon, a child that the court had killed and turned into one of their hitmen. He finds his way to a boat and climbs it. The carving of an owl on the front of the ship turns its head and watches. Bruce panics and punches the head clean off. He walks some more before finding himself in the camera room once again. He sees his parents down a corridor and runs to them. They're old and blind, but the three embrace each other before huge owls claw their way out of their mouths and attack Bruce. He runs into the fountain room and claws at a tile on the floor, his hands turning into the talons of an owl. He jumps down the hole under the tile and lands in the camera room once again. He panics as the talon approaches from behind and stabs him through the back. Meanwhile, the bat signal blows up from being on for too long. Uh, uh, this was an excellent offbeat issue, smack dab in the middle of the Court of Owls, which hurts the narrative a little bit when reading this as a standalone. However, the storytelling in this issue is exemplary, with artist Greg Capullo taking the disorientation of Bruce further as the story progresses, by first turning the comic on its side and giving the reader a story that runs downward, and then flipping again so the reader has to have the book upside down to read it. It's a gimmick in the storytelling that can only be done in comics, and in single issues as well. In the trade, I bet this is a pain in the ass to read. Yeah. Capullo utilises page and panel layouts beautifully to tell this story in a visually interesting way. The character moments that work in this story, though, are not the Batman trying desperately to put all this Court of Owls stuff together. It's Commissioner Gordon still lighting the bat signal, even though Batman has been missing for two months. It's Bullock telling him, telling him he'll burn the signal out if he carries on, and reveals that the bat signal has a cutesy nickname. It's the moment when the signal does blow out, and Damien demands they turn it back on, as if the signal is somehow an indicator that the Batman will show up as long as it's there, and as he says, has always done. And then says, please. Yeah, as long as the bat signal's okay... Batman's yeah. okay. Yeah. So the symbolism that the bat, if the bat signal's just blown, has something happened to it? Which, and it's, yeah. which, yeah. So Arguably, Scott Snyder has a better handling of Damien than Morrison did. Really? I think I find Snyder's Damien more likable than. Right. See, I've not read enough, indeed, any of Morrison's <laughs> Damien to yeah. be able to make a comment. Damien to me was only in this book because this was the only bat book I read. Mm. He is a much likable character further down. Yeah. I mean, he does get from the spoiled brat. Well, that was Morrison's story out for him, wasn't it? He yeah. wanted to make him unlikable to begin with, to make you likable before the ultimate end of the story. Yeah. Which is a fair enough character out to take somebody on, to be honest with you. Snyder and Capullo's run on Batman has been one of the standouts of the New 52, but it is a series that betrays the swiftness in which the New 52 was brought into being, with Snyder stating on an episode of Fat Man on Batman that he was well into the writing of the first arc on Batman before being told this would be the first arc in a brand new Batman number one, a situation that caused him a fair few panic attacks. He needn't have been concerned. So far, his run has been gold. Mm. It was a pain for me to choose an issue from this run, but I knew I did I did need one in the show. Yeah. Um, I eventually chose two, and you can find out what the next one is next week. Oh, what a tease. I know, yeah. Uh, I chose this one because it's a really dark story, 
Uh, I'm a fan of my dark stories. Yeah, I can tell. Uh, with Batman out of his element and going crazy in a way he's never been before. It features fantastic art by, by Capullo, showing us how long Batman has been trapped and how it's affected him and his costume, as well as how his mental health is affecting how he sees things. His cape is as long as Tim Sale likes to draw it, and his hands turn into talons. Snyder's dialogue shows us how Batman is cracking up mentally through dialogue and internal monologue. With the exception of Death of the Family, this is the darkest issue of Batman, and it's just simply a great read. Uh, either as part of on its own, or as an art. Yeah, I was rummaging through your boxes the other day, because I was looking for something, I can't remember what it was. Yeah. And I came across all the Batman Snyder stuff, and I, I almost pulled it back out and reread it. <laughs> well, doing that, I do want to read them all again. Yeah, it is. it has been... Uh, it's been the standout of the new 52 and I think the thing with that is because it doesn't have to be a new 52 book Yeah, it's only slowly as they've gone along that now they've got to zero year and the new 52 settled that it that is Snyder's gone well we do need to do a new origin now because all of this stuff doesn't fit anymore Yeah, and apparently he was he didn't want to do it mm. he wasn't a fan of doing it and Greg Capullo's the one going well what's the worst that can happen <laughs> So it was very good. Excellent issue. Yeah, we may have to cover some of Snyder and uh, Capullo's Batman at some point. Maybe we, Death of the Family. We have planned to do one of the crossovers. Yeah. Uh, as part of our next Batman crossover. Yeah. After Hush. Yeah. They'll do it one day. We'll do it one day, yeah. Where is Batman? Runs the cover of the Gotham Gazette. On my next pick... Only I know the answer, replies a strange man wearing a purple face mask and a crown and addressing the reader directly. And it'll cost Gotham City a billion dollars to find out. A special 25-page thriller, the cover copy of the very first US Batman comic I ever bought, informs us. And the issue? Batman number 336, cover dated June 1981. The cover was by Jim Aparo, and this set me back a whole 15 pence. Big money. First Batman comic I ever bought. Well, American. You sell Batman comic. I don't remember if it was bought for me or by me, but this was my first American issue of Batman. While the Bats Away was plotted by Bob Rosakis, scripted by Roy Thomas, the penciler was Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. I believe we're contractually obliged to say that. Inker was Frank McLaughlin, letterer was John Costanza, the colorist was Adrienne Roy, and the editor was Paul Levitz. The bouncer shows up Gotham's finest with a during robbery on the Goldman jewellery, and it turns out the Batman has not been seen in weeks. Thematically similar to your last yeah. chance. You'd think we planned this, <laughs> wouldn't you? But we didn't. No. This has not escaped the notice of the media, nor the Gotham underworld, who have engaged in an audacious crime wave, all courtesy of the monarch of menace, who claims to have the Batman stashed away and is taking tribute in exchange for keeping him there. Even Commissioner Gordon and Alfred are starting to have their doubts. It's all for naught, though, as Alfred discovers in the Batcave later that night when he is shocked by the sudden reappearance of the Dark Knight. And when questioned, all he'll say is, I've been away, but now I'm back. The Batman takes to the streets, quickly deducing a clue left by the Clue Master and apprehending him and his men before preventing another burglar with another team. The loose-lipped conversation tips the Batman off as to who is behind it all, and he wraps them up for the cops. However, even the Batman isn't infallible, and he fails to spot a lookout who immediately hightails it back to the Monarch of Menace, with news of the Batman's return. Of course, the Monarch kills him. 
The next night, Commissioner Gordon is on a ride along when they encounter the Spellbinder stealing furs. Spellbinder causes the cops to hallucinate, but the Batman is not so easily conned. When Gordon and his crew recover, the Spellbinder is nowhere to be seen. The Monarch of Menace, meanwhile, is holding court, explaining that he has to leave Gotham for reasons of health. But before he leaves, he will execute the Batman before their eyes, after a last huge payout, of course. The Spellbinder refuses to pay, however, and why should he, when he's really the Batman? Most of the crims flee, but a few wish to take their chances. The Batman takes out a few two-bit gunsels, but the bouncer launches himself at him at full speed. The Batman, rather than freezing, simply kicks the bouncer like a football, causing him to bounce uncontrollably in the confined space, leaving the Batman time to chase down the Monarch of Menace. The Monarch reveals he knew the Batman was half a world away and used it to his advantage. He tries to throttle the Batman, but the Batman fakes him out and activates the Monarch's own gas jets, knocking him out for the count. With the night safe again, the Batman informs Gordon officially that he's back, and the morning papers clearly state, Batman alive. Uh, <laughs> You're going to hate this. I'm not right? sure what I thought about it. I liked bits of it. I mean, it had its charms albeit in a group of really bad <laughs> characters. The bouncer, for example, whose only weakness is that he bounces, which I'm pretty sure is also his only power. <laughs> yes, valid point. Um, but apart from that, it was pretty enjoyable, only that, you know, I, I came out of it annoyed that I don't know where Batman was. I will explain that. As we as we go along. Yes, I can understand how someone of your generation <laughs> reading this for the first time would think that this was a somewhat slight tale. <laughs> it is very definitely Batman as superhero. And for all those people who are Ben is not a superhero, he totally is get over yourselves. <laughs> and yes, the villains are B list at best. <laughs> but there's there's a charm, like you say. Of him going up against B-list villains like this. Yeah. You never for any minute believe there are any real threat to him. Yeah. The monarch of bloody menace, Even really? Batman has a crap day at work. Yeah, the bouncer. But I adore this issue. <laughs> I really do. There's a certain element of nostalgia to my appreciation of it. But there's just so much to love here. This is a random issue from the back catalogue, even if the plot really wouldn't work today. Yeah. You know, with global communication, everyone would know Batman was in the Himalayas or Batman was out of town on a mission or something. Yeah. Because he was seen in this other place where he's been. But there's just so much cool stuff here, most of which would be deemed silly by today's hyper-realistic standards. Such as, well, the Batman disguises himself as Spellbinder, donning the villain's mask over his own. <laughs> Something I never bought as a kid. But the reveal was so cool. Yeah. You just let it slide. And what about that rogues gallery? The Spellbinder? The Clue Master? The Monarch of Menace? Do you really <laughs> see the all-new, all-gritty, all-rapey, all-stabby DC doing anything with these guys? Well, I'll be honest. This, this did remind me of Final Crisis, with the Monarch of Menace being the hooded judge guy yeah but you know the monarch is a great villain he's opportunistic he's manipulative he's an insane murderer but above all he's articulate <laughs> he's a businessman yeah the bouncer's really fun 
and out Batman takes him out he's hysterically funny using his power he just kicks him so that when he's bouncing around then he's got no control over where he's bouncing it's it's utterly fantastic Chuck Dixon got some decent mileage out of Clue Master in the 90s but both Gordon and the Batman refer to him as a cut price riddler implying that he never was A-list and I thought this story just flowed wonderfully from beginning to end it was a magnificent done in one story of a kind they really don't make anymore the art as one would expect from Garcia Lopez is great the Batman isn't as shadowy as he is when Marshall Rogers drew him but it's still pretty damn cool if a little chatty and everything looks exceptional although Commissioner Gordon does look an awful lot like Alex Cord from Erwolf I bet the reason the bat was away was an epic four-part story involving Raz al Ghul, which, being a Raz tale, took the Batman away from Gotham. Fair enough. My second issue of Batman was the second part of that story. Yeah. It was the one where Batman is on the cover in skis. So my second issue of Batman was actually before this one, but yeah. I bought this one first. As this was the first actual comic I have... Rather than reprints in trades or some such, the letters page was quite interesting to, to go back and read. A writer states that the Batman is more like Dirty Harry now, with more fantasy elements being lost along the way. I do wonder what he'd make of the comic nowadays. <laughs> There's an ad for the Superman Club and a Hostess Fruit Pies ad that looks like it was by Kurt Swan and Vinnie Coletta. And I think at just over two hours, we've talked far longer than I thought we'd be able to tonight. Yeah, we've done a lot for ourselves. So we're going to call it a day, the <laughs> lovely listener. Be sure to tune in next time. I can't do it tonight, can I? <laughs> you do it. Be sure to tune in next time. That's better. On an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, when we will be counting down further adventures of the Batman, which count as our personal favourites. I'm not going to give anything away, but I'm pretty sure there'll probably be a Grant Morrison tale in there somewhere. <laughs> Just a guess. I don't think there are. Is there not? I don't think I there are. I am shocked and surprised. All right. Uh, thank you for burring with Crokey McCrokenstein this week. <laughs> which is my new name. Michael sounded okay, but trust me, he's been just as ill as I am. Mm. And we will see you next week for more of our favouritest Batman stories ever told. Night, night. Goodbye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. 
join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.